I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. All right, I am so excited today. Um, before we get started, I am going to do a, a land acknowledgement that this interview is being conducted on Stolen Creek and Muskogee lands. Um, and I am excited to have, otherwise known as Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm excited to have Dr. Frida Milhouse Jones here with me today. She is a practicing primary care physician in Atlanta, Georgia. After guiding her two daughters through complex mental health issues, she has found passion and purpose in sharing her experience with others. Her advocacy and writing include the intersection of perfectionism, racism, and mental health. Her articles have appeared in both Kevin MD and Your Teen Magazine. She's an avid reader who wants to share her same passion for reading with young people across the globe. She is fiercely dedicated to empowering young girls to overcome adversity by using her personal life experiences. She has recently published her first book entitled Afro Puffs Held High. It is based on her own story of early childhood adversity. She has another book that is planned for release later this year. She enjoys naps, travel, dance, and yoga. She currently lives with her husband, three daughters, and two very mischievous dogs. Dr. Milhouse Jones, thank you so much. Are we okay with Frida? Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. For anyone listening, we're friends. So I always... (laughs) I usually check beforehand, but we're such good friends that I like forgot to mention that. But um, Frida, it is so, so lovely to have you um, here on the podcast. I have not only been excited about the release of your book, but I have read your book. I have cried while reading your book um, and and shared your book. um, And I'm just so, so excited not only to talk to you, but not only to talk about your book, but to talk to you as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, I read, I read a your bio, but if you want to maybe tell a little bit about your book, the story of how, what, what led you to writing it, um, and, uh, what that process was like for you also in terms of putting the experiences on, on paper. Yes. Well, Jill, again, thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to participate in your podcast, and I am also excited about the birth and of Afro Puffs Held High actually being in the universe. It's kind of an interesting story as to how this came about. Um, I guess since we're on a podcast, I can give the longish version. <laughs> Long it up. <laughs> Long it up. Okay. So I actually, you know, I've always been such a, um, I don't know what the right word is, but I have just loved learning about civil rights history. And here being in Atlanta, Atlanta is such a huge, huge um, landmark for so much of the civil rights movement. And obviously Dr. King was born here. And I just felt like being here, going to his birth home and going to the other um, landmarks here, uh, like Ebenezer Baptist Church, et cetera, et cetera, on tours, I had this longing to go to Memphis, um, even though such a horrific event happened there but the you know the Lorraine Motel is now a civil rights museum and I wanted to go if 
by myself where I didn't have any little kids that were like saying, can we hurry up and go? And when are we going to leave? And when are we going to eat? And all of those kinds of things. And so I just took a flight one weekend and got up bright and early and went to the museum. And I just was so inspired um, and moved, you know, with Dr. King's life and what, how it um, so tragically ended there and just all of the stories of the civil rights movement. And I sat at dinner by myself just thinking, you know, how can I contribute something to the world? I think Dr. King says, if you can't do uh, great things, you can do small things in a great way. And I thought, you know, how, how can I, what, what can I put into the universe, albeit small, possibly, but maybe it can help to that end. And uh, I thought about my story growing up um, from a, what felt like pretty integrated neighborhood and school where I felt safe and loved and nurtured. And then moving to um, the Midwest, rural Midwest. And when I, um, when I got there, I was the only black child in the school and it was very uh, shocking. It was, uh, it was difficult to say the least. And I thought, well, maybe something about that story can help other young people overcome um, diversity and how do, they, how do they kind of maneuver their way in a world where they feel like they don't belong. And I jotted down most of my story and kind of bullet points and what I thought I would include in a children's book. I didn't feel like I had like the wherewithal and bandwidth to write a, a real like memoir. <laughs> so I was like, I can probably do something small like a children's book. And after I finished that, I was feeling great. But then quickly, this perfectionist that I also talk about perfectionism, the perfectionist in me was just like, oh, that's crazy. That's a dumb idea. Like nobody's going to like that. And then it just sat in the, in a book, <laughs> in a notebook for five years. Oh, and wow. then, yes, yes. And then finally, I did a group coaching session with a dear friend of mine, uh, Kara Pepper, who is a physician coach. And through the work that we did there, I just kind of got the courage to get curious and see, you know, hmm, I wonder how hard it is to write a children's book. And I wonder how hard it is to find an editor. And, and each question just led me to a path. And the next thing you know, here I am having a book that was fully edited and getting illustrated and voila, here it is. Five years later. <laughs> right. Gosh, you know, it's, I didn't know that it was a five-year process um, or a five-year hiatus, I suppose, mm -hmm. between that. And I just kind of want to name that. And that must have been, I don't know, how did that feel knowing that it existed in you, but wasn't, was there like waiting? Was it part of your consciousness on a regular basis? No, because I just talked myself out of it, you know, just, um, I've always been so high achieving and that was seemed so out of my realm of comfort. Like I could take a standardized test and study and, you know, do all the math and science you would throw at me, but really being vulnerable in that space to put your, you know, your name on a book and have it be for sale. And, and, you know, part of my experience also in that same school system, you know, taught me or I, maybe internalized that I wasn't a good writer. Mm. And it's because I had this one particular 
teacher that I remember working so, so hard, like so hard. I would have my dad proofread and my sister who was in college, uh, you know, studying journalism and, you know, and I would read it over and over again. I'm like, this is great. I'm going to get a good grade on this. And every time I would hand it in, I would never get a grade higher than a B. Hmm. And there would be other classmates that I know, I mean, I knew their work product during school because I'd worked with them in school and groups, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, how are they getting A's? Yeah. And I am getting B's. And then, and I still just thought it was me at the time, but then obviously I knew there was other biases there that this particular teacher was never going to give me an A no matter how much I, I worked. And so I just said, well, it's just me. I'm not a good writer. So I'll just stick with math and science. And there you have it. And so part of that also said, oh, book, you know, I'm not a writer. Nobody's going to want to read that. Yeah. So you had to carry that belief with you mm-hmm. um, as a result of a childhood. Exp- I mean, that's, it should be surprising. It's not surprising because this is the kind of thing that happens all the time. And um, thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that eventually you were able to recognize that and, and move forward with writing your book because it is so incredible and you are absolutely a wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what were some of the experiences? I mean, okay, so you've already mentioned a teacher who doesn't, who's going to kind of automatically not believe in you. Um, what are some of the other experiences that informed the book? Um, and how have those kind of played out as you've grown up and as you've matured and become a professional, like, do you still, how do those still um, manifest, I guess, internally? The themes throughout the book? Is that what you're- Like the experiences that that led to you writing the book, like some of your experiences at that school in the Midwest and- How it plays out now. I mean, I think that we see it. I mean, like anywhere you look in society, you see kind of, uh, you know, being a woman, an African-American woman maneuvering through a world that is just by design made you feel inferior. I think that, you know, anywhere you go, you have that um, kind of that internalized narrative because you just can't, you can't get past it, right? You've You've seen growing up, you know, all of the beauty magazines and everything. This is the standard of beauty. These are the people that hold high office, you know, et cetera. These are the people that run companies. And we're seeing more advanced, clearly more advancements now and a lot more initiatives um, regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, But the day-to-day, you know, in a workplace and a going to... You know, I remember like just, I remember one time we went to Charleston as a family and it was early in the morning. We were trying to walk to a museum and this was like maybe six months or so after the, you know, within the year after the mother manual shooting um, at the church there in Charleston. And we were walking down the street and these young men rolled down their windows and started screaming at us, you know. And it was frightening. And my kids were, you know, probably this was around four or five years ago or what have you. And they were scared, you know. And my one daughter was so 
young, she was like, maybe they had too much sugar this morning. <laughs> so, but, you know, um, I'm like, no, baby, you know, that, yeah, maybe, but that was not nice. I didn't like that either. And you still, you could just be minding your own business and have to deal with um, those kinds of things, overt racism, overt hatred, et cetera, et cetera. And then I don't want to make it seem like everybody is like that clearly because I have wonderful nurturing people around me as well. Um, I, I feel like I'm fortunate. I surround myself with a lot of uh, people of all different backgrounds and, and we're working all to, to be better versions of ourselves. Um, but you still have to draw your strength from somewhere. And, yeah, yeah. And civil rights heroes is uh, from a day-to-day -day operating as a woman of color. That's where I draw a lot of my inspiration. I love that. And and the I don't want to give away too much about the book, but <laughs> but the the little girl in the book uh, and the book does so as well. And what I find just the kind of peak, the emotional peak of the book, at least uh, in my experience of it. Um, what are the Afro puffs come from? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I know your personal story, so I, I would love for you. To <laughs> My youngest daughter that we call Livy, and she's actually so it's a little bit of a combination of multiple things. Uh, she's my daughter, and I used to put her hair in Afro puffs quite a bit, and I just thought they were the cutest things on her. And we would just sing that song like I rock, rock that stuff with my Afro puffs. Hey, rock on with your bad self. Um, and we would just always sing that when she would be in Afro puffs. And I would say, in, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm going to write a little book about her one day with her puffs. I just thought that was so cute. And then I had that story kind of written in the book, just kind of sitting there. And finally, when it came together, I wove her and her puffs into my, you know, kind of fictionalized version of my personal story. And then voila. The birth of Afro Puffs Held High. So good. Um, it's amazing just like learning about stress and toxic stress and trauma, like that continuum. I do a lot of outside work in that area and, and the ways that stress can lead to growth and resilience and all of that. Um, and it doesn't justify the experience that, you know, it's not like, yay, how great that you had those experiences, but it's, it is so in the right circumstances that you have been able to take that experience and create something so powerful, um, to provide support for other people going through that experience. Cause that's one of the, for anyone listening, like that's one of the things that, that prevents stress from becoming trauma is, having support and having tools and a framework to know like, Hey, this is, this is, this is a thing that happens. I am not alone. And like uh -huh. Uh -huh. through it. So that's mm -hmm. not just helping people feel good in the moment, but really like preventing longer term trauma living in their bodies. Correct. Correct. I mean, I will definitely have to say that it was, it was, it was very traumatic during that time. No question that there, you know, when we moved to that, kind of town or township they they call it um you know we had no family we were just isolated we were all from the south all of my relatives were in the south so there wasn't a ton of support and at the same time 
there is so much that I learned as a human being from that experience. I think that it's helped me tremendously with learning how to identify and find common ground with almost anyone because I had to, you know, kind of weave and, you know, kind of be a little bit of a chameleon of sort to try to fit into social groups and, um, and make friends and not feel like such an outsider, you know, you just have to learn how to maneuver. And so I find now that in, in medicine, it's very helpful because I can walk into a room with a patient. And of course, you don't know them, right? You may, I mean, you may know them if you take care of their family or what have you, but most of the time you don't. And so when you're trying to establish trust in a patient-doctor relationship, you know, it's not just about what is your medicine list and what's your family history and social history and all those things. It's like, hey, tell me about yourself. Oh, you like to do this, you know, X, Y, and Z. Oh, I know someone that does this. Or you have to find a common thread that, yeah. you know, that common piece of humanity that we can, where we can connect and uh, connect as humans and not just in this kind of sterile mechanical healthcare, like hierarchy. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm sort of choosing my words here because I think it's amazing that you've developed that skill. And I think it's also crap that you've had to develop that skill to, mm-hmm. of navigating to try to not feel like an outcast in a, in a all white or mostly white environment. You know, like that's just mm-hmm. human nature to, to come out of these experiences with skills and, and, and all of that. And also, um, how traumatizing that was in the moment, in each moment, not just one moment, but like continued moments. Uh Uh Um, Maisha, my, uh, partner, Dr. Maisha Claiborne talks about, I've heard her talk about, um, code switching as like a, a sign of, what did she say? Like, like a sign of higher communication capability and like, you know, like I, she wasn't, I don't think she, she wasn't trying to just say, oh, it's to see it as positive. Cause, because mm-hmm. it was like, look at this evidence of such an enhanced ability to be able to navigate different contexts and to be able to recognize social cues and stuff like that. Even though of course it's the situation that creates that is wrong. Right. But that ability to navigate that is is powerful. Any thoughts on that? You know, it's first of all, I'm like, thank you for saying that. I was like, what's that term that they use nowadays? Because <laughs> I was like, I'm so old. Sometimes I was like, I was like, I know that there's a term, but I can't remember what it is. But oh, I was a master code switcher, master. I yeah. still am of sorts because you know, I mean. I would go to school, but then I would come home. It was, I still lived in a black Southern family, you know? And so everything that was a part of our roots um, of just traditions of living in the South and growing up in the South from food to the um, canning food to just whatever it is that we did, music and dance and all the things, it was still, still very prevalent in the fabric of our home life. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I guess I was a master. I learned to be a master code switcher. And that's, uh, that's a, another skill as your partner talks about that serves you as a woman of color in this world, you know, yeah. because you can go into lots of different environments and, and um, not have people just automatically say, oh, she's, 
dumb or she's whatever, you know, she doesn't know how to carry herself or she's whatever kind of stereotype you might want to throw mm-hmm. at me based on the color of my skin. It's like, I can at least, um, put up a good front or put, you know, maybe challenge your narrative that you've got in your head from your own implicit bias. Yeah. Where, how do you see, like, this is a possibly an unanswerable question, but like, do you see a, a version of the world where that is not possible? And like, what does it take to feel belonging in a situation where you're not only around family? Well, I mean, you know, I just think about like when I was growing up in the nineties and even with television, you know, like if you wanted to see music that was like hip hop or what have you, you had to like stay up late and watch video soul or something of that nature. And we see so much more, uh, just so much more of a variety of different cultures that we show on TV and ex- express in media. And um, and one thing that has been as awful as George Floyd's murder was, you really see, I could see a shift in so many people that things, you know, that uh, racism, prejudice, biases, things that you know, that they would say, oh, well, that was just that, or that's just isolated, this is that. There was really a genuine interest to try to learn more and be better educated in that arena. And I think that that provides hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I see more people, even in my own profession, that can show up as their whole entire selves. And I feel like I have gotten to a point in my own personal um medical kind of career where I can be my whole self as well and not feel unsafe yeah you know or feel like I'm in jeopardy of losing my job or losing credibility with patients uh etc and so all of those things are really really are it's the needle moving in many ways in the right direction and yes there is still Dear God, so much work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of the work you do is around mental health um, and how that intersects with racism. And I wonder if you um, would want to share some of uh, some of the ways that you see the intersection of those two, of those two things. Um, you know, as a physician, as however wherever you want to go with that. Um I, <laughs> It's like, how much time do you have? I mean, I could just keep it, keep it going in that arena. Um, you know, I have been very vocal about, um, you know, my journey with my daughter and her eating disorder recovery. That was part of the, one of the articles that I, you know, wrote in Kevin MD and then it got kind of, um, adapted for your team magazine. And I would say within eating disorder care, it's just pretty staggering with the healthcare disparities. Um, for example, I believe, and I don't, I may get some of these, I don't want to be like, I'm not exact on the numbers because I didn't look them up prior to, but for sure, like when you look at teens of teens of color, like African-American teens, like uh, conditions such as bulimia actually have a higher incidence than that of Caucasian teens. Um, 
and then they have looked at stories or they've looked at um or they've developed studies or researched like if a person has this particular story of let's say this is how much I restrict and this is how much I'm eating et cetera, et cetera. you know the teen that was Caucasian or the person is Caucasian you know will have a much higher percentage of the time that the provider will say this is problematic mm. you know and maybe less than half the time exact same story African-American patient you know, half the time or less, maybe the provider would say, this is problematic. You know, there's such a stigma that especially restrictive eating disorders don't have to happen in African-American communities. Um, I definitely remember thinking that growing up uh, just kind of because the only people you would see would be like Karen Carpenter, Princess Di, you know, all these other very thin, real, you know, uh, maybe well-off uh, Caucasian women. And yet disordered eating, like, and eating disorders are such a huge problem in, the, um, in all BIPOC patients really. And, but we're much less likely to get asked about our eating um, patterns and eating behaviors um, or purging behaviors, you know, over-exercise behavior, any of those things. And so that's one huge disparity, you know, we're not asked. So if you don't ask, you can't identify the patient and they can't get help, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then secondly, let's say that you do get help, you know, or you want help. Mental health care in this country, it is just so infuriating many times because all too often how you do is linked to whether you're a have or a have not, you know? And so in particular, eating disorder care is extraordinarily expensive. You know, most people, at least in the metro Atlanta area, um, because eating disorder care is kind of niche and to really help someone, you've got to kind of need to know what you're doing. It's not just, there's a lot of coaching that happens mm -hmm. and most of those therapists for their own livelihood will only, you know, take cash payments. Yes, you can submit it to your insurance, but you may or may not get much on the back end. And so if you're doing weekly visits with a therapist and then you've got frequent visits with a dietitian, and then you've got psychiatry appointments and don't, they don't take your you know, insurance, they're accepting cash out of pocket that you have to submit as well. I mean, you're looking at in the thousands of dollars in cash up front for just a month of care. And then yes, like, again, you know, I sit there with my own like super bills all the time and submitting claims. But if you're a person that's, you know, uninsured or underinsured, where do you, what do you do? Yeah. You know? And so um, there is a, a physician of, that I uh, did a brand rounds with for Morehouse um, Department of Psychiatry and some of her data from their large telehealth um, practice that does accept insurance. However, it only right now goes up to about age 21. Um, but when they looked at BIPOC patients versus Caucasian patients, at, as far as presentation, BIPOC patients came in at a um, lower weight on average and were less likely to have received previous eating disorder care. So it just basically is a marker of severity by the time that they actually enter into the system for treatment. Yeah. 
attesting to the uh, not being asked, not being identified, not having access to care. Um, you know, it's a real problem. And hospitalizations for African-American patients for eating disorders, I think since like their, their um, stat was like from 2017 until maybe like a year or two ago, those admissions went up 217% in African-American patients. What do you think is the cause of that? Oh boy, there's books on that too. I mean, you know, um, food is probably one of the easiest things that we have access to from a young age. So if there's any trauma and like with, especially patients with eating disorders, it's like trauma is almost like always in the fabric of the, uh, you know, the undercurrent of how they're using food to manage their anxiety, their whatever it is. Everything's feeling out of control so I can control this one thing and feel okay. Um, so yeah, then you've got like stressors related to colorism, racism, you know, um, just social, socioeconomic stresses, financial stresses. So, um, you know, and binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder where people binge eat but don't purge. So, you know, that hides underneath very commonly. You know, nobody has to know that I'm sitting here with all of these potato chips and you know, donuts and, and maybe a pizza or whatever it is that is your favorite binge food mm-hmm. to just stuff down my emotions. Yeah. I can imagine in a world where you're not seen or allowed to express your full, one's full personhood mm-hmm. and emotions. And if you do not heard or misinterpreted or, you know, blamed or judged, then like, there aren't a lot of ways to cope with that, that are going to be um, healthy. You know what I mean? Like I can see how it would be very easy to, to develop unhealthy coping mechanisms because you're not really given any choice. Yes. I mean, the way the brain works is that, you know, if something helps to kind of, let's say if you're looking for something to numb a negative emotion, and you try something like binge eating and it works, or you try something like over-exercising and it works, then the natural feedback is like, the brain knows like, oh yeah, that worked. Let's do that again. That works. let's do that again. And then it just becomes so ingrained that whole loop of behavior and how you respond to whatever it is that's a trigger maybe. And then it's so secretive. So yeah, one has to know. Right. I've learned a lot recently about the fact that people who are in fat bodies often are also not diagnosed with eating disorders because like you're saying, the, the, the stereotype or the, the image that people see in their minds are like thin, affluent white women. And so because of that eating disorder, I mean, it's just like a whole area. I know you're doing great work in it. And, um, I would love to have seen that grand rounds that you did. Um, but yeah, like there's the whole medical establishment is not trained. I wouldn't say is not trained to recognize. It's trained to not rec- is trained to not recognize. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like it's a I think it's an active, an active indoctrination that we receive rather than like a lack of education. Uh, It's a little bit of both, right? It's a system that doesn't really incentivize you kind of going into that because 
to go into really screening for an eating disorder is it's going to take time. You know, people aren't going to just come up and say, hey, you know what I did yesterday? You know, I had like, the, you know, two boxes of thin mints and I did X, Y, and Z that I, you know, regurgitated it. And like, no one's just going to say that right out of the gate. It takes a lot of time and trust and um, in a system where you need to get to the next patient within 15 minutes, that doesn't, you know, yeah. doesn't really lend to too much of vulnerability um, from the patient to the physician. Um, yeah, so there's that for one. And two, I would say that we are not adequately trained. It is a skill and you have to really, really be passionate about it. Um, you know, so much of healthcare has uh, counseled patients to lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. You know, that's what we say. Everything's going to like, if your blood pressure will be better, if you lose weight, your diabetes will be better. If you lose weight, your arthritis will be better if you lose weight. And, you know, so we are incentivized to just keep, you know, because most patients are going to be either overweight, you know, or obese based on the BMI, which, you know, that has its own um, <laughs> pitfalls. Um, so there's a lot more focus on that but yet the time it takes to, to, to identify that subset of people where, you know, that's gone too far or they're struggling, you know, that's just kind of not really in the, the formula. Yeah. I'm also thinking just about like society's notions, like everything you said, you know, times a hundred plus also the, the vision that thin equals healthy and fat does not equal healthy and thin equals valuable and fat does not equal, you know, equals not valuable skin color, you know, mm-hmm. white is valuable, mm-hmm. black is not valuable. And so all of that interplaying as well, like trying to minimize oneself or trying to, um, it's, um, is it, is it a kind of code switching? Am I taking this too far? like trying to like meld into the like society view of what's healthy and what's normal and acceptable physically as well. I like, just think that we are, it's, it's, I don't even know if it's just trying to like code switch or anything. It's just, you know, this, it is everywhere. The, um, the messaging that you need to be thin, you know, you yeah. hear it at the doctor's office, you see it all over, um, magazines, you see it, um, in advertisements. You, it is just, it's almost like it's, you know, molecules in the air. I mean, it is so everywhere. And it's like to not internalize that is almost like, you're almost like Teflon, you know, <laughs> to not like, it's right. like, oh, because it's just, just there, you know, even with the, the exercise community, you know, we all like love all of our like particular people that we follow on maybe Instagram or whatever. And it's like, and they're just like, oh, you know, posing, maybe they're muscular, maybe they're thin, maybe they're just talking about how they intermittent fast, like all those things, you know, that's kind of what we've been told is valuable. And so it's hard to not, it's hard to not fall into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you have like um, thoughts on how, if there's anyone listening to this, who is in a position where they could be looking for warning signs, for example, um, particularly for their, for their colleagues, friends, children, you know, students, patients who are not white, who are, who are black or other, or other patients who are of color, 
things that like questions to ask or, or, and I, obviously this is not medical advice. This isn't for that, but like, what, what, how can, how can, what are some ways that people can do better in terms of recognizing? Um, I would say, you know, first and foremost, not to make assumptions, you know, to just ask if we're talking about someone that's just, you know, personal kind of relationship, if you notice behaviors like where they're, you know, not going out to eat as much, you know, definitely patients that are restricting or, you know, very concerned about eating, they will not eat in front of people as much. So they may, you know, kind of skip going out to dinner or um, skip family meals or um, disappear not long after meals. Um, you know, uh, those are probably some kind of obvious ones. Again, I haven't like, I didn't like look up the whole list. There are some, if you, there are resources like um, here in the metro area, there's EDIN, eating EDIN, I think it's Eating Disorder Information Network. There's NETA, National Eating Disorder Association. Um, uh, IADEF is a big society of professionals that are involved with eating disorder care, but you can go onto a you know, many websites where they'll have like lots of different things that you can, um, that may raise an eyebrow, you know, as to, hmm, a little concerned, you know, about this particular person. You know, if they're living in the home, if you start to see like, you know, wrappers and bags and food like under the bed and different places, that might be a clue to, to binge eating. Or obviously if someone's starting to lose weight and look thin and ill, um, or weak and tired, you know, that's probably what they'll feel just fatigued and tired a lot at first. That might be a sign as well. Um, but yeah, definitely check out some of those actual, those eating disorder information websites, and they can answer a whole lot of questions for you and maybe get you, um, directed to someone that can, um, professionally help that person. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. I'll link, I'll link that in the show notes. Um, yeah. And sorry. I was like, no need to know statistics. And you don't, you still don't need to know statistics, but I, I know getting into questions where the, the doctor in you is probably <laughs> wanting to offer more specific answers than, than, uh, you know, the right. Right. Answers. That's how I was like, Oh, I was like, Oh, I didn't look that up. Oh, I didn't. I was like, <laughs> so anyway, no, but like everything you've offered is like a million times more than I would know or that, you know, most people listening would know without needing mm -hmm. statistics at all. Mm -hmm. um, so what is, what would you like listeners to, to take away from either your book and, or our discussion about eating disorders and mental health or both or something totally different? Is there anything else you want to say? Uh. Yeah, I mean, I just, my first thing, my gut kind of, my gut uh, response is how you start doesn't have to be how you finish, you know? Um, yes, you may be in hell right now with whatever mental health condition you're grappling with or, you know, with your um, binge eating or restrictive eating or just purging or just whatever it is, you know, your hell right now doesn't have to be your hell that you stay in. And um, 
ask for help. Just ask for help, ask for support. Um, someone, and there are agencies that do offer care at a, a discounted rate and scholarships for eating disorder care. You know, I think that there's starting to be more of a push towards these big telehealth platforms for a lot of mental health conditions because access is so difficult, especially when you're looking for people that are insured. So I'm starting to see more of that uptick. Um, and just for the, the little brown girl with her puffs that's walking around, you know, I just want to let that little girl know in particular that you are strong, you come from greatness, and your greatness lies within you. You just have to tap into it. And then, you know, just like we say in the book, you can be strong and scared, yeah. you know, just show up. Um, and it's not just for the brown skinned girls, but just anybody that's overcoming any kind of adverse adversity, you know, maybe you're in an environment that is not LGBTQ friendly, you know, and you, you know, don't feel like anybody gets you or, or understands you, or maybe you have a disability that, you know, and the rest of the kids, the rest of the people in the room, um, they're moving along in their, you know, physical bodies just fine, but you're not, you know, your greatness still lies within and, you know, you can keep pushing forward. You just have to tap into that. Um, that's beautiful. I'm going to try not to cry at the end of, at the end of this interview. Um, we're going to put all of your um, social media handles in the show notes. Um, where can people find Afro Pups Held High? Oh, lots of different places. So um, you can visit my website, which is freedomillhousejones.com. Um, so that's F-R-I-E-D-A-M-I-L-L-H-O-U-S-E. De wait, sorry, Jones, J-O-N-E-S, all one word, .com. Um, it's on Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, Walmart.com. And then obviously I do want to put a little plug in for independent bookstores because it's on Little Shop of Stories website as well, Indicator. Um, that's Here, Georgia, that is. Oh, right. Fair. Georgia-centric. Um, right. That's amazing that you've gotten it in so many different places. Are people, is there a way like for people to use this in a curriculum or is that, is that like, would people just reach out to you if they're wanting to, um, you know, provide it for their classroom or? Yes. I mean, they can definitely on my website, there's a way that you can kind of inbox and drop me a message. Um, but it's very interesting that you say that. I've had some um, friends of friends that were teachers that really like gave such insightful um, feedback on uh, things that they could see that could be used for teaching certain milestones and certain, um, you know, I'm not a teacher, but uh, just things that they can identify from a learning standpoint within the book. You know, it's interesting because I wasn't even thinking about that when I wrote it, but they were just like, oh, you can do this and this and this and this. And, um, and then I had another woman that's a, was a librarian for many, many years that just talked about all the different things like, you know, moving is such a big theme for kids, you know, that's one thing. And then, you know, um, the historical aspects and, uh, there was something in the Jewish liturgy, she said, that talked about your strength 
coming. I actually talked about your strength line from within and, you know, and she just went through lots and lots of different things that were just so powerful. So, I mean, I'm really touched that the story that just became cathartic for me and just wanting to put a little small ounce of good in the universe and also wanting to have something for my daughter permanent in, yeah. the, in the world um, is now being so well received. And it just, it really, you know, brings my heart joy. I'm, I'm super grateful. That's amazing. Um, well, Dr. Milhouse Jones, thank you for joining me, for sharing your experience and your expertise and your passion and your heart and all of it. Um, and I would venture to say this is like more than just a little moment of good into the world. That you <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and like expand that um, because this is, it's, even without the book, you're amazing. And then this on top of that. So uh, thank you for being who you are and um, for taking time out of your, your busy day, saving lives to, uh, <laughs> to chat with me. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.